The Last Word with Matt Cooper. It's Culture Club time and it's the second time that we have a horse slip with us. Uh, Barry Devlin had been with us previously. Eamon Kerr is with us today and we're going to talk a little bit about horse slips and also about his new book, Show Business with Blood, A Golden Age of Irish Boxing. Eamon, great to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Isn't it brilliant to be here? Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, it is. And actually, we do have to mention, of course, you lost the key member of horse slips during the year. Johnny Fiend died in April, wasn't it? I know. It's absolutely outrageous. It's shocking. In fact, Johnny and I have been in touch a lot over the last two years, all during COVID. You know, we'd be emailing and messaging and so on. Because we were we were all working, horses were working on a box set. And there was an al- there is an album of stuff that I had recorded with Johnny late at night in studios on a row and all that sort of stuff. And it made an album. So I was sending tapes to Johnny and tracks to Johnny and he was saying, no, maybe not that one, but this one and all that sort of stuff. And his critical faculties were perfect. So anyway... The record came out and everything, we were still in touch. And on the Wednesday, on a Wednesday in back in, what was it, April or May, um, we were in touch about other material that I had, I had located in the attic, in the archive, as we call it. But anyway, and I said, so listen, I said, I better get cracking on this stuff. I said, because I'm not getting any younger. And he was going, oh, oh, oh lols, and let's carry on. And on the Friday morning, I got a phone call. And this guy says to me, Eamon, I said, how are things? He said, oh, no, dreadful. I said, what's up? He said, Johnny's dead. And of course, I automatically assumed he was talking about somebody like a, someone that we might have known as a roadie or, I don't know, didn't know who he was talking about. And then it suddenly dawned on me, it was Johnny Fian. Just shocking. I mean, really shocking. Because he was the youngest in the band. And the most talented. <laughs> Credible. Very sad. Ah, yeah, no, it was, oh, really, yeah, 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 very, very sad, really, you know. Because Johnny and I had soldiered on as well. I mean, after Horses, we we'd the Zen Alligators, and then we did an album called The Host with Charles. And, you know, it just, um, anyway, but we spent a lot of time together, Johnny and I. But, yeah, I mean, but listen, we, we've read all the rock and roll biographies of all our favourite artists, so, I mean, you know, we're prepared for this sort of stuff. It's real life. And listen, but you did also during COVID and... Let's move to something else. You did get your book started and written, Show Business with Blood, A Golden Age of Irish Boxing. You love boxing almost as much as music, do you? Yeah, well, oddly enough. Yeah, well, you see, the funny thing, I was on the boxing beat as a journalist because I sort of positioned myself to be on the boxing beat. Yeah, that goes back way further, doesn't it? I know, it it did. went back to my childhood, essentially. And and as I was thinking about it, I began to realise, oh my God, I actually have this absolute and real connection. Interestingly enough, in the in the world of boxing, when I turned up, nobody said, oh, there's your man from the band. You know, what would he know? Nobody actually said that. The boxing community, I think, are fantastic. Amateur clubs all around the country. And my dad had been helping the local curate back in the 50s. So that's that was my entree. And I understood them. And everybody was totally accepting. It's, 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 it's almost like the GAA, in a sense. And... Uh, people just doing it for the community and so on. But then, you know, then Irish boxers started to make waves, if you like, in the professional world. And I happened to be there. And uh, so I, I wound up in a position with astonishing stories, which I would be telling friends. And they would say, no, no we don't want to know. We don't believe you anyway. So I said, look, I need to chronicle this because it's too good. And, and I did. So I eventually just sat down and said, right, I'll do it. I said, I'll do it in six months. It took me nine months but I overwrote, and then it took another six months to edit all the stuff that was extraneous. 
but show business and blood, because you sort of draw a comparison, don't you, that in some respects it's the whole thing about putting on the show and the sort of the people who get attached. It's very similar to music. Boxers themselves. I mean, I was astonished. And professional boxers would say, you know, before a big fight, they'd say to me, you know, I really have to go out there and put on a show and put on a good show. And looking at them going, wait till you're going out there to box, you're going out there to fight. But it's put on a show because if they don't, in that, you know, brutal, violent, aggressive stuff, uh, then the audience won't pay money for the next fight. Won't come to see them if it's boring. And Andy Lee said one night, he said, I had to knock him out. He said, because the guy was stinking the place out. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah, he was, you know. But so the boxers themselves use that. And of course, the promoters use that. And then they were, they, 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 they have the ring music, you know, the, the ring walk music for the fighters to come in and it's all <laughs> uh, ACDC and what have you, you know. And uh, it's, it's, but it's, 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 it is a world of, of, it's violent show business, you know, and there is blood. And that phrase wasn't mine, show business with blood. I lived, when horseps started, funnily enough, I lived in a house with uh, uh, Jim McNeil. He was a Scottish boxing writer for the Irish press. And his wife, Jackie, made the costumes for horse lips, right? And Jim had two specialist subjects in his life. Poor guy went back to um, Scotland, and unfortunately, he, he since died. But he had two specialist subjects. One was gangsters. And, and the world of crime. He was really very good. That all Al Capone, all that sort of stuff. He'd be a great man of mastermind. And the other, of course, was boxing. And he often referred to it as, oh, it's show business with blood. And I think the phrase might have originated with Bud Schulberg, who wrote On the Waterfront. But did it become uncomfortable for you in recent years in that that criminal element has become very associated with Irish boxing? Yeah, yes, in, in fact. But the point is, I mean, Boxing, professional boxing and, and criminality, they always seem to go hand in hand in, in the public imagination anyway, you know, in America. And they're always sort of shady deals and they're always sort of dubious uh, results and fights. So all that sort of, that debate. And, but curiously, um, the, what do you call it, the, the MGM gym started up and that was Matthew Macklin and his partner was Daniel Kinnan. And they set up this gym in Marbella. And a lot of Irish boxers began to flock. Not just Irish, by the way. British boxers began to flock to the place. And they set up a, a promotions wing. And they started organising, getting really good fights for the, profession, the young professional boxers. So you, you could understand why the boxers would sign with the company. I mean, M Matthew Eklund had absolutely no connection with organised crime. And he's, he's, he's on Sky TV and so on and so forth. But the the, uh, the 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 man in the background connection in the background was actually Daniel, and he was a boxing fan. But the, the interesting thing was that these guys were actually they were professional fighters. That was their job, and if they didn't get fights, pro proper fights that they were getting paid, you know, good money to, to to perform. If they didn't get those fights, they weren't bringing home the pay packet. So the and there weren't too many. There was no real proper infra business infrastructure in Ireland. But this sort of provided one for a lot of guys. And some guys didn't do it. And some guys didn't take, you know, that deal on offer. A lot of guys did. And, went, and they fought for titles. Um, but ultimately, the wheels came off the wagon. And because there was a, a feud between two distinct forces in the world of Irish boxing.
and and we, we had a feud on the streets. People started dying and shootings and so on and so forth. Uh, and and has that tempered in any way your love of boxing? Um, no, the boxing, I, I still see the actual fighting where two men, or indeed two women, as that happens, we, I mean, this Katie Taylor's fight there last week was just astonishing. You know, they train, they make it, they're physically fit, they're mentally equipped, and they step into a ring, and they know that the other person is trying to demolish them, knock them out, finish them off, whatever. And, and, and they set about trying to unravel. It's like a chess game. They try to unravel. And I remember years ago, Bernard Dunn was explaining to me, and he was showing me some moves. And the interesting thing was, it really was like chess. His moves were three or four moves ahead. So he would do a feint, which, you know, you might catch, but that wasn't the point. He was thinking three moves ahead. He knew that I would do something, or the opposition would do something, and something would result in this, and then, boom, then he would hit him. So Chess with violence. Chess, violent chess. Yeah, yeah, three-dimensional violent chess. <laughs> we better get to your choices for Culture Club. You know, we ask everyone to start with the first single they've ever bought. And some people have given us a single. Some people say it was an album they first bought. I think you must be the very first person to give us an EP. There's probably a lot of listeners wondering, what the hell is an EP? I know. Isn't this arcane stuff? Yeah, yeah. Dreadful. An EP, an extended play, as it was known. It was a 45 a disc which played at the same, a vinyl disc which played at the same speed as a, a single, which was at 45 RPM as opposed to 33 and a third. And um, the, one, the one I bought, I bought, um, I bought a dance set which was a sort of a square box with a speaker and a turntable on it. And, and uh, it was a sort of a portable record player, essentially. And I was sort of living a nomadic existence even then. I lived with my grandmother and then I lived with my aunt and blah, blah, blah. So I used to carry this thing around with me. And uh, so I bought an e- the first thing I bought to play on it was this, it was an EP and it was called On The Scene. It was 1964. Hello, that's a long time ago. Anyway, the, the great thing about it was I wasn't just buying a single with, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or whatever it might be with an A-side and a B-side. I got six tracks and I was, I thought I was smart enough to realise that this was really good value. So I, I actually got a segment. It was called On the Scene and it had the animals, the yardbirds, Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames and the Downliner sect. And they were the, the four big names. There were two others, the Cherokees and the Cheyennes. But even those two bands were sort of one-off bands and uh, they had personnel that went on to, you know, into other bands afterwards. But um, it was really good and so I felt, right, okay, so I'm checking this out and I'm beginning to know what's going on. I'm feeling, feeling my way into the world of rock and roll. But the curious, the curious thing is, I was really funny, only when I sort of was thinking about this, I realised that, in fact, the, the Georgie Fame track was actually produced by Ian Samwell, who had written... Uh, move it for Cliff Richard. Okay, a lot of some people might remember, other people won't. But he became a record company, A and Orman. And years later, in around seventy four or five, he came to Donegal in the dead of winter to see Horselips, because he was maybe thinking of signing, getting the band signed to the label he was working for at the time. Did he? Uh, no, we signed with we signed with Dick James, who was the publisher of the Beatles. Let's hear a little bit of Georgie Fame and the Blue Flames, and this is Doremi. Do re mi fa sol a ti My Isabella was a pass in me She got a whole lot of rhythm When she 
Georgie Fame there, Dore Me. Now, when it comes to favourite album, favourite band, or favourite artist, you've wrapped them all in together with Bob Dylan. Oh, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that, but um, yeah, the favourite album, I was thinking, oh my God, what is my favourite album? And then I did that old trick of, well, if I really was actually going into isolation, or indeed, you know, onto a desert island, whatever it might be, what, what would I try and grab? But there was a Dylan album, one of those bootleg <laughs> records that came out, the official bootleg series, uh, Telltale Signs. And I, it's probably the album I've been playing most over the last whatever number of years since it came out. And it's a, it's, a lot of it's a, <coughs> excuse me, outtakes. And there's some live stuff on there. But there are some astonishing performances and also astonishing songs. And it's the, the time period that it, it sort of captures, if you like, or represents, it stretches from the Old Mercy album. Uh, right through to modern times. And I don't know about you, but with me with Dylan, I mean, I think probably the last Dylan record I would have bought was probably something like, I don't know, maybe Desire or something in the mid-70s. It was sort of a period when there was a big pile of albums, which frankly, I didn't really listen to much. And as a reviewer, as a music reviewer, I was, I was getting albums, and I got this album called Good As I've Been To You, and it was Dylan on it. Blue cover, a little black and white photo of him in the front looking quite ancient and, and a fairly wrecked looking. And essentially it was an acoustic album of him, just his guitar, audio verite, singing all these ballads and folk songs and stuff. And I thought it was astonishing. So I, it reawoken my interest in Dylan. I went back and I started looking at original songs and then I compared his voice to the early, the early folk singing Bob Dylan, this child that had started making records in the early 60s. And here we suddenly had this man. And what he had done with this record was he had reinvented himself. And he had rediscovered, if you like, his his, uh, his mojo, I suppose is the word people would use. So the the, uh, the series of albums, he had tracks from 1989 from the Old Mercy album up until Modern Times, which is 2006. But there's one great lyric. Every time I hear it, it stops in my tracks. It's a song called The Red River Shore. Now, Dylan, of course, is a great man to nick stuff from other people and recycle lyrics and verse and so on. But this is tremendous. And he says, he said, Now, I heard of a guy who lived here a long time ago, a man full of sorrow and strife, that if someone around him died and was dead, he knew how to bring him back to life. Well, I don't know what kind of language he used. Or if they do that kind of thing anymore. <laughs> it's astonishing. I, I find it astonishing. Uh, the track we have is one of the outtakes from the Time Out of Mind album, which is included on Telltale Science. This is Mississippi. I've been working in town 
been in trouble ever since I set my suitcase down. Well, I ain't got nothing for you. I ain't nothing, before. Bob Dylan. And one last bit of music before we go to the break. Best gig you're at, and you played in countless gigs for horse slips. I presume as a music reviewer, you've been at countless ones as well. Um, wonderful gigs, yeah, um, ranging from Captain Beefheart to Nina Simone and so on and so forth. But Jerry Lee Lewis came to live in Ireland. He was escaping from the IRS. And Ty Coughlin, the man behind the bar down in, in Frank Ryan's bar in Queen Street, was Jerry's man in Dublin. So he got him a house out in Black Rock, right? So anyway, Jerry Lee arrived and he was here for ages and he formed a little band and he used to fly out of Ireland as if he was flying out of Nashville. He'd fly out of Ireland, go to Sweden, go to France, wherever, and play some gigs. And one night he played in the, in the Gaiety. It was the same year that he, he got up on stage with Bruce Springsteen, brought him up on stage in the RDS. And it was the first time that Springsteen got to play with him and Springsteen was blown away. But anyway, at the gig in the Gaiety, Jerry Lee was on fire. I've never... Ever. And I've seen him a few times, but I've never seen anything like this by any other artist. He had three gears. One was straight into rock and roll, and he was banging it out. Astonishing stuff. He switches into country, and he really gets down into the heart of the country experience. Astonishing. He, he, I don't know what it is, but he can really express stuff. But then the third gear is when he goes into gospel. And by the end of the set, he was speaking in tongues. It was this, like, you know, those... Preachers, you see the snake handlers and they're inspired by God. There's tongues of fire coming down on them and they're singing. And you know what they're saying? That was Jerry Lee. It was astonishing. And Ty said to me afterwards, do you want to go back and say hello? And I went, well, I'm not too sure. But we did anyway. He was wrecked, Jerry Lee. He was wrecked. But he was, he was perfectly cordial and uh, a southern gent. Mind you, he had shot his bass player somewhere along the line. But um, I, I, I find him... But he was nice to you. He was charming. <laughs> and we need to take a break. Eamon Carr is with us for the Culture Club. We'll get to his non-musical choices when we come back after this. Welcome back. Eamon Carr is with us for the Culture Club. You know him from his work over the years with Horse Lips. He's also written, what is the fifth or sixth book? Uh, no, no, I think it's only the... I think it's the third. I, think, oh, right. four. I have a long think, list of books sorry, here. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe, okay, well, anyway, this one is called yeah. Show Business with Blood, A Golden Ford. Age of Irish Boxing. So, uh, let's turn to favourite movie or actor or director. Uh, you've gone for Goodfellas. Yeah, I have. I mean, I'm not one of those movie buffs. I'm not one of those guys who sits around and watches movies loads of times and can tell you all about the, the cuts and the, the big long camera shots and whatever else, you know. But I don't, my, you know, my memory is just that when I saw Goodfellas, I was blown out of my seat. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. And I remember seeing Hilary Mantel wrote a review of it, would you believe, for The Spectator. And she said, that opening scene when they're driving along and they're banging in the back of the car and they open the boot of the car and there's a body all, a mass of blood and the three guys are looking at it. One guy takes out a gun, the other guy takes out a knife to finish off the poor individual in the boot of the car. And she said, you know, you wonder what the director is going to do to be able to to maintain your interest in looking at these savages for the next couple of hours. But Scorsese did it brilliantly. Fantastic soundtrack, brilliant performances, uh, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesky, and just an astonishing story. And, and a gangster who, at the end of it all, regrets that he can't still be a gangster. Let's hear a bit of it. It was a glorious time. The wise guys were all over the place. 
It was before Appalachian and before Crazy Joe decided to take on a boss and start a war. It was when I met the world. It was when I first met Jimmy Conway. He couldn't have been more than 28 or 29 at the time, but he was already a legend. And he'd walk in the door and everybody who worked the room just went wild. He'd give the doorman a hundred just for opening the door. He'd shove hundreds in the pockets of the dealers and all the guys that ran the games. I mean, the bartender got a hundred just for keeping the ice cubes cold. See, Jimmy was one of the most feared guys in the city. I mean, he was first locked up at 11 and he was doing hits for mob bosses when he was 16. See, hits never bothered Jimmy. It was business. But what Jimmy really loved to do, what he really loved to do was steal. I mean, he actually enjoyed it. Jimmy was the kind of guy who rooted for the bad guys in the movies. You know, he was one of the city's biggest hijackers of booze, cigarettes, razor blades, shrimp and lobsters. Shrimp and lobsters were best. They went really fast. And almost all of them were gimmies. I mean, they just gave it up, no problem. They called him Jimmy the Gent. Tommy, help the lady. The drivers loved them. They used to tip them off about their really good loads. And of course, everybody got a piece. Thanks, Jimmy. I'll be back with the rest later. Okay, see you later. That is so much packed into that. But you nearly went for Apocalypse Now, I believe. Yeah, I, yes. In fact, I was... I, well, the thing about Apocalypse Now was... And, and there is a sort of a, a good fellow genre, but Apocalypse Now, I was very lucky. Well, I was in New York when that came out. And somebody in the music business, I think it was, said, said to me one day, would you like to go and, and to a movie, you see? And of course, when you're in New York, you're running around the place like a lunatic anyway. And I said, go to the pictures. <laughs> Like, hello? said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's this, you know, thing, you're published now. I said, ah, here we go. So but what it was, it was actually a, a, a preview, a screening, a test screening. It was, but it was in a big cinema with a huge screen. And there were no credits on the edit. And so I was given a program, like in a theatre program, which is fantastic. And, and it was astonishing. I mean, really, really was astonishing. And... Uh, I mean, it was really odd because it was a sort of a smattering. The public were in as well, I think. And at one stage when the helicopters came in to strafe the village, this lunatic guy in the seat opposite, opposite me jumped up and started screaming, Bong the Kong! Bong the Kong! The guy was back there in his head. Astonishing. But, then, but when I eventually got to see the actual film, when it came to Dublin, I was telling you, oh, we've got to go and see the film. Wasn't half as good. Well, it was, but it wasn't quite as, <laughs> as, as what you'd seen the original. It wasn't cut. quite as good. Yeah, the original cut. I thought felt, I felt was better. Favorite play or theatre show or musical? You've gone for a thing called New York Living Theatre. What's this? Yeah, the New York Living Theatre group came to Dublin in 1967. Hello, here we go. Yeah, God, I'm living on my memories here, and um, they were astonished. They put on two plays, both of which I went to. Uh, one was Frankenstein. And the other was Antigone by the Sophocles play, right? <laughs> I'd studied Greek, see, in secondary school, it's Greek and Latin, right? So, so anyway, I thought this would be great, but it was astonishing. They, they, they caused uproar in Ireland. It was a huge group. I didn't fully appreciate this. It was, they were a revolutionary American group. And if, if, if you know what, remember the kids from fame were all running around. And it was something like that, except this was in the 60s. And they, they had left America under pressure because Judith Mullen, the, 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 the woman was Julian Beck and Judith Mullen, the two people who ran it, and she wound up in jail because they were doing protest theatre and so on, right? and it was against Vietnam War and everything. So she wound up, I mean, they went into, to Europe to escape, and they came over to Dublin and did, the, did a couple of nights, these two shows. And the audience, half the audience got up and left. But 
the the uh, Antigone was astonishing because there were no backdrops, there were no side flaps or any of that stuff. You just saw a bare stage with the back wall all chipped and all the rest of it. And the the cast, there was over 40, by the way, in the troupe. It's a huge troupe. They were staying down in Talbot Street, in the old Moore's Hotel, most of them. And they were all in their underwear in the 60s, right? And they all came out on stage. And essentially, there were two armies. And they fought. And it, a lot of it was mime as well. And it was astonishing. It was riveting. It was an epic. And I couldn't believe it. And Frankenstein was even, don't start me on Frankenstein. That was astounding. Okay, and I well, I'm going to have to move you on because we're going to run out of time, unfortunately. Tell me, favourite book or author? Yeah, I made a discovery. I'm about 50 years too late. I think John Le Carre is my new pet love. Um, I always assumed, rashly and wrongly, of course, and everybody's probably laughing when they hear this, that the spy from the commit from the cult and all those books and so on were, were, were probably like Ian Fleming or something, you know, which was dreadful, execrable stuff. Um, but I read The Pigeon Tunnel, which was a series of essays, a sort of memoir, whatever, in 2016 or something. I couldn't get over the, the, uh, the writing style and the language and the concise and um, evocative writing. So I went back and I read Spy from coming from the cold is an astonishing piece of work. So I'm working my way through the carry. I'll be going for quite a while yet because I've only written about I've only read about five of them, um, but I love his style and I love it. I just love precision, beautiful economic use of language, um, and 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 ability to communicate. And I get that in in the essays. Not so much in modern novels. I don't like modern novels, but essays by the likes of Hilary Mantel or Gillian Tyndall. People like that. Colm Tobin. I love, I love Tobin stuff as well. Really just, just fine language. Nothing revolutionary. Just precision. What about television? TV. Yeah. You're not oh, a big no. fan of television, are you? And oddly enough, not necessarily, no. I, uh, I don't. So my only television, my television memories, we had, we had, I think it was the second television set in Kells County Mead in the, in the 50s. So, and all the kids would, would come around to our house. And uh, champion, what was it? The Lone Ranger and, and, and the Avengers and, you know, all that sort of character. Oh, ready, steady, go. Of course, definitive, definitive life. That changed my life. Ready, what was ready, steady, go? Oh, it was, it was pop music. Well, sorry, it was a rock music, a beat group music with Cathy McGowan. Incredibly stylish. Mod, it was mod. It was mod on the weekend. And the, the, um, the slogan, the logo, as I recall, was the weekend starts here. Fantastic. So you've got Otis Redding and the Stones and the Beatles and everybody live on on and great camera action. Not not stayed like Tom of the Pops or anything like that. It was like being in a club. Well, so, one last thing. We call it buried treasure. Something maybe that people would not think of at all. And you have a couple of things you're suggesting to us. Yeah, well, I was like... Things that made, meant something to me and um, quite important. One was Lebrocchi, Louis Lebrocchi, the painter. His isolated being, it's a painting that's hanging up in the Hugh Lane in the Municipal Gallery. And I would have seen that in around 65 when I was a kid. And I just blew, it blew my mind. I just stood in front of it and went, wow. I understood. That was the picture that helped me understand painting, uh, slapping paint on a canvas. And years later, I plucked up courage and, and I approached him. And I said, excuse me, Mr. Lockie, I just want to say, blah, blah, blah. And he was thrilled. He grabbed me by the arm and said, yes, and it really was very important in my life. Really bad. So he 
that meant something to him. It was a wonderful picture. But the other thing was Frank McGuinness. It was Christine Sheridan uh, who introduced me to this. Frank McGuinness, she gave me the Faber and Faber book version of The Matchbox. And it was astonishing. It, it, it's, it's a play which, when it was staged in Liverpool, Leanne Best, who's the niece of Pete Best, the original drummer in the Beatles, and... Who's been on the Culture Club as well. Oh, really? Oh, there's posh now. <laughs> so, so as it turns out, um, when I read it, again, I was astonished because it's, it's like the reading Euripides and Sophocles but all rolled into one. Let's hear a little bit. It's Frank McGuinness, Joan Shee and Cathy Belton speaking about the Matchbox. Oh, brilliant. At the beginning, you meet Sal. She's a woman who's living on Valencia Island in County Kerry. She's been there for a number of years. And you realise very quickly that something tragic has happened in her life. She's in a terrible predicament. Uh, her child has just been most violently killed. And she's dealing with this savage bereavement. And at one level, maybe that's all that can be said about her, that she's a woman suffering from this wound of loss. But this woman is a survivor and this woman has powerful feelings and moves through this into something else. She is a first-generation Irish. She's dealing with that displacement, her parents' displacement in England. She's dealing with the fact that she did get pregnant early. She's dealing with the fact that she's fiercely bright, but that she really gave up her education to, to mind her daughter. She's dealing with an awful lot of um, powerful forces that have shaped her life and then suddenly this utter shock to her system happens so that explains it powerful stuff no it really is powerful stuff but beautifully written I mean just remarkable I mean you know another brilliant Irish writer fantastic actually you're a brilliant Irish writer yourself the new book <laughs> is Show Business with Blood A Golden Age of Irish Boxing and sure all the horse slip stuff is still available isn't it oh it is and indeed and for those with a few bob there is a box set with 33 CDs in it is that a, all and a small wheelbarrow uh, needed to carry it home from the shop it's an outrageous piece of work Eamon Carr thank you so much for being with us The Last Word with Matt Cooper weekdays from 4.30 Today